Everyone in Britain knows that women won the vote in 1918 because of the suffragettes. At the opening ceremony of the 2012 London Olympics, the British staged a wonderful pageant of their history. What they imagined was their history. And there were the suffragettes, Emmeline Pankhurst and the women in their white dresses, their green, white and purple ribbons and their big hats. They were the brave pioneers who chained themselves to railings, smashed windows, got arrested, went on hunger strike and were forcibly fed. They were the young women who worked in the munitions factories during the war. Votes for women was their victory. Except that, when you look closer, it simply wasn't. Votes were won in 1918 not by Mrs Pankhurst and the suffragettes, but by a completely different group of women. Hello. Good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. On the 6th of February 1918, the Representation of the People Act was given the King's assent. It gave women the vote. But only if they were over 30 and were also a householder, or married to a householder, uh, or occupied a property worth at least £5 a year, or a graduate of a British university. 8.4 million women in all. Uh, They would be about 40% of the total electorate. A long way to go before women would get the vote on the same basis as men. But it was a major first victory. On the 23rd of February that year, Emmeline Pankhurst and two other suffragette leaders wrote to their supporters in what had been their Women's Social and Political Union, the WSPU, which we nowadays know as the suffragettes, and they wrote, Votes for Women has been won because the WSPU was blessed with marvellous leadership, which drew to itself loyal and enthusiastic followers. They went on, The WSPU, by its pre-war crusade for the vote, followed by its patriotic stand and national service during the war, has won the greatest political victory on record. End of quote. Now it's a pretty extraordinary statement, not only because the leaders gave most of the credit to themselves, but also because almost every word of it was untrue. In this discussion, we're going to step back a bit and begin to understand why that was. Now, this can be a contentious issue in which tempers get a bit raised. So let's be clear. We're going to use almost exclusively the work done by women historians. We're going to argue that women's votes in England were won by women. But we're going to argue that the Pankhurst and the suffragettes stole that victory and claimed it without any justification for themselves. The question of giving women votes had been debated in Parliament since the 1860s. 60 bills to enfranchise women had been introduced, and that's not counting bills that would have given all men the vote as well as the women. Uh, But every attempt had failed. Once war broke out in August 1914, the question looked as if it had gone away, at least until the fighting had finished. But then, rather unexpectedly, 18 months later, early in 1916, it came back. According to traditional political historians, what happened next was this. 
And as you know, at the History Cafe, we usually go through the traditional story before we look at what we think happened. So bear with us. And actually, in this case, it turns out to be very important to hear the old story first, as you'll see. Since May 1915, wartime Britain had been governed by a coalition under H.H. Herbert Henry Asquith. His cabinet largely contained Liberals with some Tory ministers and a few Labour. According to British law, there would have to be an election by the end of 1916 at the latest. And pretty much everybody wanted one. Asquith's wartime coalition was breaking up. The attack on the Somme from the 1st of July 1916 was going disastrously badly. And that's a story that also needs another look at the History Café. Not only was Asquith's own party, the Liberals, in meltdown, but so were the Conservatives. Factions in both parties were competing for control in the hope of getting rid of Asquith and getting themselves in power. Pretty much every hack and second-rate politico on the Westminster block was itching for an election. But how could you have an election when Britain was at war? It wasn't so much a question of practicalities as of who would be able to vote. In 1916, only about 40% even of the men were qualified to vote, and many of them were sitting in mud-filled trenches across the Channel. But it was a lot more complicated than that. At that time, you couldn't vote if you hadn't occupied your house for 12 months, or if you were receiving poor relief. But many men had been absent from their houses for a lot longer than 12 months because they were at the front, and others had had to move to take up war work. And with all the disruption of the war, others were out of work and had to accept poor relief. So the register of voters, last drawn up in 1910, was hopelessly out of date. Anyway, pretty much everybody was now agreed that it would be grossly unjust only to allow two out of every five men to vote when a vastly larger proportion than that were risking their lives being shot at or had in other ways had their world turned upside down by the war. And that was especially true after May 1916 when compulsory conscription meant that every man aged 18 to 41, married or single, could be forced to join up and fight. So by 1916, everybody was talking about who should be allowed to vote. But taking any kind of decision looked impossible. The situation within Parliament in 1916 was of such mind-numbing political complexity that you lose the will to live just thinking about it. The election kept being put off. And after the latest delay on the 14th of August that year, there was uproar. Some wanted every soldier to be allowed to vote. The Labour Party were even saying women should vote. Two days later, on the 16th of August, up jumped a minor Tory minister, Walter Long. He had a brilliant suggestion. Well, nowadays, Long has been long forgotten. But before the First World War, he'd been a contender for the Tory leadership. He'd kept up his image as an irascible country squire from Wiltshire, even though by 1916 he was in fact sitting for a constituency in London. Anyway, he was deeply enmeshed in the factional squabbling within the Tory party. Well, now, Walter Long, prompted, he said at the time, by some Liberal and Labour members, suggested that the whole question of who should vote should not be fought out on the floor of the House of Commons, but be referred instead to a special cross-party conference. Well, that got everyone off the hook, at least for the time being especially when the respected and long-serving Speaker of the House of Commons, James Lowther, was persuaded to chair the conference. He and Long spent the September parliamentary break of 1916 drawing up names and eventually came up with a list of 32 conference members who they thought represented all the innumerable interests within all the parties. 
I have quietly to suspect that Long and Lyther, who was also a Tory, had half an eye on the advantage to their factions within the struggle that was going on within the Tory party. Anyway, the men around the table at the Speaker's new conference would have such a vast range of different opinions that nobody seriously expected them to agree on anything. But from the 12th of October 1916, they dutifully sat down twice a week. And they kept going all through Christmas. And that was remarkable enough, because on the 5th of December, Asquith's government finally collapsed and was eventually replaced by one under Lloyd George. He was a Liberal, but his government was largely made up of various factions from the Tory party. And against everyone's expectations, the conference kept on going in the new year. More than that, by January the 10th, 1917, Mr Speaker and the others at the conference had, to everyone's amazement, including their own, agreed about absolutely everything. Except one thing. One outstanding question. And yes, you guessed it. That, of course, was Votes for Women. The old story is that votes for women were won in 1918 by the Pankhursts and the Suffragettes. But when you look at what was going on in Parliament, you find something very different. Traditional political historians point out that the question of votes was in fact hammered out in an all-male conference proposed by an MP, Walter Long, and chaired by the Speaker of the House of Commons, James Lowther. On the 10th of January 1917, Having met with his conference twice a week for three months, the Speaker, Lowther, finally suggested that they might also consider giving some votes to women. Now, Speaker Lowther had wisely left the question of women's votes till last, since he thought it was the thing he was least likely to get any agreement on. But half the members of his conference were, for one reason or another, broadly in favour. The Tories in favour thought that they had something to gain from women. They thought feminine common sense would balance out all those working-class trades union men who the conference had by now decided should be given the vote. The Labour representatives were all in favour of everybody getting the vote, man or woman. It had been Labour Party policy for years. Some Liberals were happy for women to get the vote because they didn't want to be outdone by the other parties and find women turning against them when an election came along. So that day, 10th of January 1917, Lowther, the Speaker, whose chairmanship had been widely praised, tentatively put it to the conference that they might, perhaps, consider giving some votes to women. Well, the conference took a vote and rather surprisingly quickly agreed. They would give some votes to women, but the devil would be in the detail. Which women would be allowed to vote? They discussed a series of possible ways to do it. Should it be on the same basis as men? Well, that would in practice mean that far more women than men got votes. Partly that was because there had for decades been more women than men in Britain, and partly because so many men had been killed in the war. Well, that was voted down. The conference would have to find a way to impose a limit. And then someone came up with a brilliant suggestion that the simplest way to balance the number of men and women would be to raise the voting age for women. 40. Too high. Uh, 25. Too low. So, 30, 35. The members of the conference were happy with either. They reckoned that would come to about 10 million male voters and 6 million women. Sounds very fair. (laughs) And so, with remarkable speed and common agreement, it was done. 
the Speaker delightedly reported the results of his conference to Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, who in due course reported to the House of Commons. It took a while to hammer out the details. After all, the Speaker in his conference had recommended a whole range of things, including changing to proportional representation, yes, which very nearly made it through and would have transformed British society ever since. But as we've seen, the representation of the People's Bill finally became law on 6th of February 1918, and women who were 30 or over got the vote. Well, quite a lot of them did, anyway. Hallelujah. Ish. (laughs) (laughs) So where were the Pankhursts and the suffragettes in all this, in these key months in which British women won the vote? Well, the answer is that they were nowhere at all. In fact, on the 14th of August 1916, Emmeline Pankhurst had sent a message to the Commons by way of a Tory MP, Commander Kalayan Belairs, saying that she would be perfectly happy for the soldiers to get the vote and not the women at all. Over Christmas 1916, Press Baron Lord Northcliffe wrote to several women who'd been involved in the suffrage struggle. Well, he was owner of the Times, Observer, Daily Mail and Daily Mirror and himself deeply involved in the struggles going on within the Tory party. Put on a big show, he told the women. Demand votes. He even wrote them letters on Christmas Day. He assured them that the editor of the Times was signed up to it all. Do something, he pleaded, so that the papers can run a story on it. But none of the women seemed interested. Actually, what's really significant is that Mrs Pankhurst was so unimportant by the Christmas of 1916 that Northcliffe hadn't even bothered to write to her. She was invited to a meeting with Lloyd George on the 29th of March 1917, but so were 34 other women's societies, and all Mrs Pease said was that she would agree with whatever Parliament decided, women's votes or not. During all the tense days since mid-1916, Mrs Pankhurst had spent her time trying, and failing, to set up an orphanage for war babies. Now, what's even more remarkable is that after the March 1917 meeting, there were many months of extremely tense debates in Parliament in which votes for women could easily have been lost. And where was Mrs Pankhurst then? Well, first she embarked on a nationwide tour. She was campaigning for industrial peace, by which she meant working with industrialists to suppress British trades unions. Nothing to do with votes for women. And then she went to Russia... And there, she was on a mission to try to stir up support for continuing the war after the first revolution of that year. She raised the money for her trip through the WSPU's magazine, Britannia. But actually, Mrs Pankhurst was already being funded to go on the trip by the British government. It's not clear that the readers of Britannia were aware of that. And when Emmeline Pankhurst returned from Russia, she found that her daughter, Christabel, with whom she'd always shared the leadership of her movement, had spent much of the remaining money left from the suffragettes' women's social and political union accounts, buying a large Italianate house in Holland Park. Ignoring protests from the remaining members of the WSPU that this amounted to embezzlement, she explained that she thought it would make a good orphanage. Events quickly proved that it didn't. But in November 1917, with the Bill for Women's Votes still in the balance in Parliament, Emmeline and Christabel closed down the WSPU, the suffragettes, for good. They did start a new organisation in its place. They called it the Women's Party. Equal pay and conditions for women were on their agenda. But so was the campaign for industrial peace, as in no union-led strikes. And so was, weirdly, restricting jobs in the British civil service to people who could prove they had pure British blood. Amazingly, votes for women were nowhere to be seen. 
Well, so much for votes for women being won by the marvellous leadership of the WSPU. The fact is that during the crucial 18 months in which women's votes were agreed by Parliament, the leaders of the suffragettes, the WSPU, Mrs Pankhurst and her daughter Christabel, had been nowhere to be seen. All of which used to lead political historians, mainly men of course, to mm-hmm. conclude, as one of them loftily put it, quotes, the women's suffrage movement in Great Britain has suffered from the misconception that it was through the urgings, exertions and sacrifices of women what a misconception. <laughs> that the vote was finally achieved. But in fact, quotes again, this problem was resolved by the Speaker of the House of Commons, a man who overcame every procedural difficulty which might have hampered women's suffrage by decisive rulings from the chair and resolute action at the conference table. In the end, apparently, according to these historians, the men had gifted women the vote for their own selfish party political reasons. And that's what the British Parliament's own website still says today. But as you'll have guessed, it's a very long way from the real story, which is much more interesting. Feminists have long told us that the Pankhursts won the vote for women. Well, judging by the events of 1916-17, to 17, when the legislation to give women the vote went through Parliament... That's simply not true. In those months, the Pankhurst had nothing at all to do with it. Traditional political historians, in fact, claim that women didn't win the vote at all. They were given the vote for grubby party political reasons. It was a deal done largely behind closed doors by a conference of 30 men and the Speaker of the House of Commons, also a man. But both of these versions suffer from the historian's habit of burying their head deep in the sands of their own little patch. What we always find at the History Cafe is that things change when you get your head around the wider context. So let's change the metaphor, pull up some more chairs, widen the conversation. Let's rewind back to March 1916. In that month, a very different body from the Pankhurst WSPU took the decision to restart its campaign for women's votes. This was the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, the NUWSS. Now, this story was first told back in 1980 in a doctoral thesis written by Sandra Holton, who's since gone on to become a distinguished historian of suffrage. The NUWSS was an umbrella organisation set up in 1897 that pulled together almost all women's suffrage campaigners, with the notable exception of the Pankhurst WSPU. When war had broken out in 1914, the NUWSS had suspended its suffrage campaign and put all its energy into practical work to set up hospitals in the battlefields and relieve poverty and hardship at home. However, as we've seen, by the spring of 1916, the question of votes was in the air again. The pressure on the home front had also eased up a bit. So the NUWSS encouraged its local branches and societies to get back to campaigning. They could start by sending in resolutions, pressing for votes to be given to women. By June 1916, 226 NUWSS branches and societies had sent them in, and they'd been forwarded to the government. Local societies also began putting pressure on their local MPs. In August 1916, Millicent Fawcett, who'd been president of the NUWSS since it began, convened a conference. Representatives of the various suffrage societies were there, all except, of course, the Pankhurst and the WSPU. Sympathetic MPs also came. 
One of those who was there was Henry Nevinson, a journalist who was back briefly from his work as a war correspondent. He was a member of the United Suffragists, which included both men and women. In fact, many of its members had left the Pankhurst WSPU in disgust at its tactics over the years. And it was Nevinson, in the course of Millicent Fawcett's conference in August 1916, who first came up with the idea that the best way to get women's votes was to call a special, well, you guessed it, a special speaker's conference. Ha ha! You remember that the long-forgotten Tory squire Walter Long, who proposed the idea in Parliament, said that he'd got it from certain Liberal and Labour MPs. Well, now we discover exactly where those MPs had got it in the first place. Sandra Holton discovered that it was Millicent Fawcett's contacts in the Commons who'd persuaded Long to propose the conference that they'd come up with as his own idea. It was a brilliant tactic, since it played right into the Tories' internal faction squabbles, and it got the different Tory groups competing to push the idea as if it had been their own. Well, once the Speaker's Conference was announced, NUWSS societies began a furious campaign of meetings, writing to the press and sending deputations. Uh, you recall that Mrs Pankhurst was at this time touring the country campaigning, uh, not for votes, but against trade unions. MPs and members of the Speaker's Conference, however, found that they were being bombarded with letters and memorials from NUWSS societies telling them to give women the vote. They also started getting memos supporting women's votes from the trades unions, which, despite the Pankhurst's best efforts to close them down, were becoming increasingly powerful. It was, of course, the NUWSS that had shrewdly got the unions involved in their campaign too. On the 15th of December 1916, while the Speakers' Conference was in the middle of its deliberations, but before it had got round to discussing women's votes, there was a very interesting informal meeting at the home of Sir John Simon. Now, he was one of the Liberals on the conference, and another was Willoughby Dickinson, an MP with a long-standing commitment to women's votes, and that evening he was also at Simon's house. There, too, was the journalist Henry Nevinson, who'd first proposed the conference, and also Millicent Fawcett, president of the NUWSS, and two other women suffragists from her society. The six who met at Simon's house discussed the opposition they might face when the Speaker's Conference finally began to discuss the women's issue in the new year. The most obvious objection was, of course, that there were more women than men. Now, there was a ready-made answer to this. It had been discussed among NUWSS suffragists since at least 1913. The simple solution was to raise the women's voting age. So at the meeting at Sir John Simon's house, Fawcett and the others decided, perhaps reluctantly, that that was what they'd have to do even to 40, if that was all they could get for the time being. The meeting therefore agreed that the two Liberal MPs would try to get the Speaker's Conference to agree to women's votes in principle and then go for a variety of different ages in turn to see what would get the most support. They also agreed to pull strings and get one of the Tory members of the conference, Sir William Bull, to suggest all of this as, you guessed it, as if it was his own idea. After all, the various squabbling Tories would probably be the most difficult to win over, and this strategy had worked before with Walter Long, and they hoped it would work again with Sir William Bull. He was Walter Long's parliamentary private secretary. Well, if this is all beginning to sound familiar to you, you'd be right. Now Millicent Fawcett and the others just needed to wait until the Speaker decided it was time at last to float the idea of women's votes. 
The real story of how women finally got the vote has nothing to do with the Pankhursts and the suffragettes. Nor was it, as traditional political historians suggest, just a grubby deal done among the men in Parliament. Behind the scenes, we discover, using the work of historian Sandra Holton, that every one of the moves the men in Parliament took had been thought through and quietly organised by Millicent Fawcett and her National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, the NUWSS. In December 1916, Millicent Fawcett met with five others to plan a strategy. Two things we should notice about this December meeting. One was that it was shortly afterwards that Millicent Fawcett began getting letters from the Tory press baron Lord Northcliffe demanding a big blustering fuss for women's votes. Well, of course, that might be good for Northcliffe's paper sales, but it was the last thing Fawcett was going to do just at this moment. She'd just set up a plan for an unruffled debate at the Speaker's Conference and she didn't want anything to interfere with that. So that was why she ignored Northcliffe, not because she wasn't interested. But much more important, you already have guessed it, when the Speaker finally, gingerly, raised the fraught question of women's votes at his conference on January the 10th, he suddenly and magically found it was all much easier than he'd expected. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the Tories, uh, Sir William Bull, unexpectedly <laughs> piped up and suggested that they should they could limit the number of women voters by well, raising the voting age. Oh, good the, idea. the men around the table nodded in agreement and found themselves being calmly led through exactly the procedure Millicent Fawcett and the other five had secretly worked out a month before. And it went like clockwork. Bull later proudly described how he had, quotes, commenced the bidding at a voting age of 40. He'd made a jokey little speech about how, by 40, women had done with child rearing and had, quotes, more time to devote to matters political. (laughs) Whether or not Bull actually believed it, it was a good ruse. It put, he wrote, even the opposition on the conference in a good humour and the right frame of mind to consider the matter. Naturally. Nobody knows if the Tory speaker Lather ever realised what was going on. But much to his delight and surprise, having expected the conference to fall apart over women's votes, the whole thing sailed through in a week, with scarcely any disagreement at all. Sometime around the end of the week, Millicent Fawcett and her parliamentary secretary, Ray Strachey, a woman engineer and writer, met with Walter Long, and he agreed that he would back the conference proposals if they were now put forward in Parliament. Fawcett also had conversations with other members of the conference, and agreed that the NUWSS and all its hundreds of affiliated societies wouldn't oppose an age limit for women, since that was the best way to get the proposal through Parliament. Well, of course they wouldn't. They'd suggested it. So what looks to political historians like a clever male political fix by Walter Long and deft committee work by Speaker Lowther turns out to have been nothing of the kind. The whole thing had been carefully, quietly and skilfully proposed and prepared by Millicent Fawcett, the NUWSS and their friends. They'd pulled all the strings and left as little as possible to chance. In the febrile political atmosphere of 1916-17, Fawcett and her allies had pulled off an extraordinary coup. But it was far from over. The old story that Mrs Pankhurst suffragettes won the vote for women turns out to be unjust. It was a completely different organisation of women and some men, the NUWSS suffragists, who brilliantly masterminded a plan to get the vote agreed by a speakers' conference of the House of Commons. But that was just the beginning. 
The Prime Minister, Lloyd George, went through his copy of the Speaker's conclusions, scrawling lines to highlight the various difficult bits, including, of course, votes for women. He never wanted them, really. He took over a month to summon the courage to take anything at all to Parliament. In the meantime, Millicent Fawcett, chair of the NUWSS, organised a meeting between him and the various suffrage societies on the 29th of March 1917. It was Fawcett who invited Emmeline Pankhurst along. But she invited a total of 24 suffrage societies, along with 10 other women's organisations and more than 50 representatives of trades and professions. Several actually objected to Emmeline Pankhurst being invited at all. Maybe she felt the hostility in the room. Maybe that was why she kept her mouth shut. Finally, Lloyd George plucked up courage and put the Speaker's recommendations to Parliament. But what followed were ten months of infighting and posturing as the various factions in Parliament scrapped over every detail. Some Tories were opposed to the whole idea of reforming votes at all. But if there had to be reform, even they were now disposed to allow at least some women to have the vote. Their contacts in the constituencies were telling them that women were as likely to vote Tory as anything else. Fawcett's NUWSS worked non-stop to get the bill through. Some suffragists, including some MPs, wanted adult suffrage, votes for everyone, which was Labour Party policy. They needed calming down, persuading that that was asking too much and would play into the hands of the die-hard Tory opponents and wreck everything. Millicent Fawcett also campaigned to keep the voting age for women as low as possible. Walter Long and William Bull were on the small drafting committee for the bill. Long found that it had put the age at 35. That's rubbish, he muttered, and put a pencil line through it. He wrote 30 instead. In the past, Long had always been opposed to women's votes. Someone had clearly talked him round. There were big public meetings to support the bill. And when it looked as though a number even of married women over 30 might somehow be excluded, the NUWSS organised a campaign of mass petitioning amongst its societies, trades unions, trades councils, cooperative guilds, temperance associations and many others. In the end, they sent in nearly 600 petitions and got the bill amended. Millicent Fawcett, at the age of 69 and suffering from bronchitis, did her best to tour the entire country. And it was Millicent Fawcett who lobbied every single member of the government, every one. When the bill was passed in the Commons by a large majority, it was Millicent Fawcett who sat down and wrote a pamphlet urging the Lords not to turn it down. It would, she argued, simply create a parliamentary crisis. Now, the Lords had always been opposed to women's votes. Really? Yeah. Lord Curzon was leader of the House and he was, of course, the hardest of die-hard anti-suffragists. At last, after two days of discussion among the peers, he got to his feet to wind the debate up. One of the policemen hurried along the corridor to where a number of suffragists were waiting anxiously in a committee room. Mrs Pankhurst, of course, was not there. Curzon's up, ladies, he's recorded as saying, but he won't do you no harm. I love that. Fawcett had attended the whole debate and now she listened holding her breath. Curzon told his fellow peers that votes for women would be a disaster. Women were politically worthless. But then he declared that, well, since the bill had passed the Commons by a large majority, it would only cause a parliamentary crisis if they opposed it. (laughs) It was as if he was quoting directly from the pamphlet Fawcett had written for the House of Lords. 
Curzon announced that, well, he would abstain. At that moment, everyone knew that the bill would pass. It received the royal assent on the 6th of February 1918. It gave 21 million people the vote, 8.4 million of them women. On the 13th of March, the NUWSS held a victory rally at the Albert Hall. Many were in their NUWSS uniform of berry red and leaf green. Why does nobody remember those colours? Only the uniform of the suffragettes. I have no idea. It's really annoying. Sir William Parry conducted his rousing new arrangement of Jerusalem, which was known at the time as the Women Voters' Hymn. Everyone sang along and they gave Millicent Fawcett a rapturous reception. But then it was back to work. They had to get women to register for their new votes and campaigning again successfully for women to be allowed to stand as MPs. Without the age restriction of 30, as it turned out. So, it not that the popular story about women winning the vote is wrong. It just gets the wrong women. In the key months in which the women finally broke through, Emmeline Pankhurst and the suffragettes were not involved. They were nowhere to be seen. In fact, the WSBU, the suffragettes' organisation, had been wound up. They weren't even campaigning anymore. Whatever they wrote to their supporters afterwards about how their wonderful leadership had won the vote, they had had literally nothing to do with it. It was Millicent Fawcett and the NUWSS, which had always been committed to peaceful negotiation, that had pulled off a brilliant campaign. Just like the women of Austria, Canada, Germany, Hungary, Poland and the Soviet Union, who also peacefully won the vote at this time, it was achieved not by breaking windows or chaining anyone to anything. The vote was won by playing the political game with extreme skill and tact. But, we can hear some of you saying, this is to take too short a view. Nothing surely in history is ever caused just by immediate events. Surely you should look at the longer background. Surely, some are saying, nobody would ever have thought of offering women any votes at all had the women not transformed their profile before the war. Through the brave and dangerous protests, the hunger strikes, the force feeding of the Pankhursts and the suffragettes. And what about the war work, getting women into the munitions factories? Surely that too was crucial. And that, surely, had everything to do with Emmeline Pankhurst. Well, it did, but like everything else to do with the Pankhursts, it's not at all what it seems, as we'll discover next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. <laughs>